Okay, God is closer than you think, but today I want to talk about when God seems absent, because there might be times when uh, that's true in our experience as well. Uh, let's pause for a word of prayer. Lord, draw near to us now as we draw near to you. We live uh, busy lives and sometimes our day is full. Sometimes we can go through uh, days at a time without being very aware of your presence, your nearness. But Lord, we want that to end. We want to have eyes to see you and ears to hear you and hearts that are open to you so that we might draw close to you, so that we might see uh, your fingerprints on the pages of our lives. So thank you, Lord, that you're here. We invite you to speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> okay, so this whole series has been about the nearness of God, the closeness of God, that it's possible for each of us uh, to learn to recognize and experience God's presence uh, right now, every moment, uh, wherever we are. Uh, in theology, sometimes they talk about the transcendence of God, which means God's over and above, high above us, His majesty, His loftiness, His power, uh, that He is wholly other than us. And uh, the transcendence of God is a good biblical doctrine. But there's also another doctrine which would seem to be the opposite, and that's called the doctrine of imminence, which means God is not only transcendent above us and greater than us and beyond us, but God is also imminent that God is actually closer to you than the person who's sitting next to you or the person who's sitting in front of you or behind you. That there, He is everywhere. He, there's no place you can go where, you will not, uh, where He is not present, where He is absent. And um, He's always here, wherever we are. In fact, uh, you're not there yet, but if you're going to go to work tomorrow, He's already there. Some of you, maybe you have vacation this week, I don't know. But there's no place, there can be no place where He is not. Now, this week especially, it's, it's Holy Week, and we're going to celebrate Good Friday on this Friday, and we're going to have the Easter pancake breakfast and Easter egg hunt on Saturday, and, and then I hope that you'll invite your friends next Sunday as we have a Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday morning. Uh, but as we, as we do so, I want you to think about this, that um, the nearness of God is very real, but sometimes we're just oblivious. So I was... Um, you know, there's a wonderful book by uh, A.W. Tozer called The Pursuit of God. And one of the things he talks about is he says there's a difference between the presence of God and the manifestation of God's presence, right? Let me read you a little bit of what A.W. Tozer says about this. He says, the presence of God and the manifestation of the presence are not the same. There can be one without the other. God is here. That's the presence of God. God is here. When we are totally unaware of it, He is always here. So that's the presence of God. But He is manifest only when and as we are aware of His presence. That's the manifestation of the presence of God. So on our part, there must be surrender to the Spirit of God, for His work, the, uh, the work of the Holy Spirit, is to show us the Father, show us God the Son. So if we cooperate with Him, with the Spirit, in loving obedience, then God will manifest Himself to us. And that manifestation will be the difference between a nominal Christian life and a life radiant with the light of his face. I love that last sentence. That, that you know, we know theologically God is here, imminent, he's close. 
But I don't know if you're, if you're like me. Sometimes we're just sort of oblivious to his presence. Sometimes we're too distracted. We're too busy. Maybe we don't spend time with him. And uh, we're kind of missing. You know, it's like you're, you could be in a relationship with someone. But sometimes we're guilty of neglecting that relationship, of not nurturing it, of not spending time together, of uh, being sort of passive and absent in our communication. So this is the idea. God is closer than you think, but sometimes you don't think about him. And so this is really important. Uh, Let me read that last sentence again. If we cooperate with him in loving obedience, God will manifest himself to us, and that manifestation will be the difference between a nominal Christian life and a life radiant with the light of his face. And I think probably a lot of us, that's what we want. We, we don't want just a nominal Christian life. You know what a nominal, it means you're, you're Christian in name only. I call myself Christian because I'm not atheist or agnostic or I'm not Buddhist or uh, Muslim or something. Uh, but some people, I think when they do those surveys, a high percentage of the population says they're Christian. But we know that many people, they're Christian in name only. It's a nominal Christianity. But if we really want to be alive with the, the life of God, then we have to deal with this thing about the presence of God. And how do I not only know about his presence, but I want his presence to be manifest in my life, where I'm aware of him, where I'm experiencing him, where I'm spending time with him, where I'm hearing from him, where I'm seeing him at work, and where I'm walking closely with him. Uh, Jesus talked about this. He said in John 14, 21, Jesus says this, <clears throat> Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And then he said this, the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Now, I I do believe God loves everybody, but most people, or at least many people, do not experience his love. They don't walk in his love. They're not aware of it, right? So Jesus says this, the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. That's the manifest presence of God. Uh, also in John 14, Jesus says this, John 14, 23, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Again, not just the presence of God, theoretically or theologically, but the manifest presence of God. We will come to that person and make our home with them. Uh, a lot of you know Revelation 3:20. It's one of the most famous verses in the New Testament. Uh, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. You know that verse? The verse before that, Revelation chapter 3, verse 19, the Lord says this, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Right? Like, like a loving parent, not an abusive parent, but a parent who really loves their child will at times rebuke and discipline, right? To raise them up to be good people with good values and, and not just self-indulgent, spoiled brats, right? So, so this is what the Lord says. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. And the idea is sometimes we're, we're out of alignment. You know, like, uh, I don't know, I was thinking about this this week. I, I, one of the things on, on my to-do list is I want to get my, uh, my tune-up on my car and I want to get my wheel alignment checked, Right? And I hear that's really important if your tires are going to last and all that stuff. Well, so what it means is that sometimes just we get out of alignment. And this can happen spiritually as well. So we need to get realigned. Uh, the, way, the, the way the Lord says it here is he says, be earnest and repent. The word repent just means something is not aligned. You're not going in the right direction. Maybe you're not consistent with the will of God. So when you say, you know what, I want to do something about that. I want to make a correction. I want to uh, line up so that, you know, I can pray with integrity. 
your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If I'm going to pray that, I've got to start with, and, and let it begin with me in my life. May your kingdom come and may your will be done in my life, which may mean there's some things I need to adjust, some things I have to repent of or, or leave behind. So this is the idea. Those whom I love and rebuke, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock, Revelation 3.20. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. And you may know this, in first century Palestinian culture, to eat with somebody was very significant. It's not just like, oh, let's, let's grab some coffee sometime or something. When you sit down to eat with someone, it's highly significant. It means you accept the person. It means if there's any rift between you or unresolved conflict, that there's forgiveness, there's reconciliation, there's acceptance, there's friendship. That's why sometimes the Jewish leaders, the, the Pharisees and, and the priests, sometimes they got really upset with Jesus because Jesus was supposed to be a, a religious teacher, a religious leader, a rabbi, you know, and yet he would eat with the riffraff, you know, with the sinners and the tax collectors. And, and you don't do that because when you do that, that means you accept them. That means friendship. That means forgiveness. So Jesus really got people angry because he hung out with people that religious people thought were unacceptable and unrighteous. Uh, but it's the significance of sitting down to share table fellowship. Highly significant. So here's what Jesus says in Revelation 3.19. I'm going to knock at the door. And you don't have to answer, and you don't have to open the door, but if you want to, you can open the door. And he says, if you open the door, if you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and meet with you and eat with you meaning we're going to share table fellowship, which means he's inviting us to be with him, and that signifies acceptance and forgiveness and friendship, and so he's inviting us. Now, he's a gentleman. He doesn't force himself on us. He doesn't barge down the door. He doesn't break in as a burglar, but he says, I'm going to come knocking, and when I knock, it's up to you to answer, to respond, to open the door. So, presence of God. God's always present, but we don't always see his presence manifested. In fact, sometimes it feels like God might be absent, AWOL, right? One of those times was when Jesus was on the cross, and this Friday we'll celebrate, you know, um, Good Friday, but it's always been sort of ironic to me that we call it Good Friday because that was the day the worst thing in history happened, right? Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior came and people killed him. I don't know. Some were threatened by him. Uh, some were jealous of him. Some didn't like the way he hung out with the riffraff and the sinners and the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Some didn't like the way that he challenged their position and their authority. They didn't like the way that he taught about God because some of it was contrary to cherished uh, beliefs that they held about God. But they killed him. It seems like just about the worst day ever. And yet we call it Good Friday. Because something more was going on. If you were there that day, what would you see? You would see uh, a lot of bloodshed. And you would see torture and suffering and pain and agony. And you would hear that man up on the cross say something that's amazing. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You would also hear that man on the cross say something that I think kind of troubles us today. Jesus on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Uh, I want us to look at that. It, it, it's recorded in, in a, several Gospels, but I want us to look at it in Matthew 27. Matthew 27 is, is one of the passages that talks about the death of Jesus and the, the crucifixion. And in Matthew 27, verse 39, uh, Jesus is hanging on the cross, dying, and it says, Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who were going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're the Son of God. They're insulting him. They're mocking him. In the same way the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Well, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I'm the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Here's the only perfect sinless man who ever lived, uh, who was and is the son of God. And he came to save us and he's dying on the cross and people are just hurling insults at him and mocking him. And um, It's a sad day. It's a sad day. What happens next? This is uh, Matthew 27, verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. And, you know, it's not just physical darkness, but it's spiritual darkness came over the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani which translated means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then shortly after that, the Bible tells us he gave up his spirit and he died. Okay, what's going on there? I don't know if it ever bothers you. It bothers me a little bit that Jesus, who is my Lord and my God, my Savior, said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what's going on there? Now, one of the things I learned in Sunday school, and I think this is true, is that Jesus at that moment was taking on the sins of the world on himself. He's the only perfect person, the only sinless person who ever lived. And he took on himself that day the punishment that we deserved. And rather than us being punished for our sins, he took the punishment on himself. And by his wounds we are healed. And so at that moment, that seems like there's sort of like a rift between the Father and the Son. Because God is holy, and at that moment, Jesus, the Bible says, he became sin for us. He didn't become sinful, but it means that the, the sins of the world were put upon him, and then he died in our place as a substitute, as the replacement, so that we didn't have to die. You know how people are mocking Jesus? They're saying, if you're the Son of God, come down from that cross, right? And I remember when I was growing up in Sunday school, and I would see these, uh, these movies about the crucifixion, and uh, it was painful to see Jesus up there crucified, you know, and bloody and beaten and tortured and all of that. And part of me, when they would mock Jesus in those movies, I would kind of feel like, yeah, Jesus, do it. You show them. Just come down from the cross and, you know, vanquish your enemies and everybody would believe in you and you wouldn't have to go through all that pain and suffering. I kind of wanted that. Then as I got older, this is what I realized. Instead of saying, yeah, I wish Jesus would come down from the cross, I ought to say this, thank you, Jesus, that you stayed up there, right? Because either he has to die or we have to die for our own sins. And the punishment that we deserved was put on him. And he willingly submitted to that punishment. 
and he took it all on himself. So when, when Jesus is on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It could be, you know, like that, that moment of desolation when the sins of the world are on him and, and he feels forsaken by God. Okay, now, that's all good. But I've learned something, you know, in the years since then, which I want to share with you today. And it has to do with this idea about when God seems absent. Because if there was ever a moment when it seemed like God was absent, the presence of God seemed to be momentarily removed from the world as his son is dying there, it would seem like that's the moment, right? But really what's going on here is when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is probably not a cry of despair and desperation. It's not like he's giving up hope or that he feels totally forsaken. You know what he's doing? He's quoting from the Old Testament scripture, from what we would call Psalm 22, verse 1. And for the Jewish people that are surrounding him that day at the foot of the cross, these people, they knew their Bibles. And so when they hear that line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Immediately, they're reminded of Psalm 22. A lot of them would have it memorized. And so what Jesus was doing I don't, I don't think necessarily that he recited the whole psalm there from the cross. But when he gives that first line, he's basically saying, think about Psalm 22. What you read in Psalm 22, you are seeing it enacted right here this day in your presence. And so I want us today to look at Psalm 22. And uh, here's what it says. Psalm 22, it's 31 verses. I'm just going to walk us through it because I think this is highly significant to really understand this issue about when God seems absent because that seemed like a moment when God was absent. And what Jesus said sounds like the absence of God. Here's what it says. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. Can you talk to God that way? Doesn't that seem kind of disrespectful, even sacrilegious, uh, for Jesus to talk to the Father that way? For the psalmist in Psalm 22 to talk to the Father that way? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, why are you so far from my cries of anguish? I cry out to you, but you don't answer. Uh, what's going on there? This is a, a certain kind of literature. It's called a psalm of lament. And and this literature, actually, if you read the 150 psalms, many of them are psalms of lament. They they are of anguish, of agony, of crying out, sometimes complaining, sometimes expressing doubt, sometimes expressing anger toward God, uh, often expressing disappointment with God. They're called psalms of lament. And what you see in these first two verses is lament. It's complaining. It's saying, God, it, it feels like you failed me. It feels like you're absent. It feels like you haven't shown up. Uh, Now, what I learned from this, and actually, ironically, this is sort of encouraging because it tells me even good biblical people like the psalmist or Jesus uh, went through some tough times and maybe had some times of doubt. And, you know, the encouraging part to me is this. You could go through doubt and disappointment. There might be even times where you're angry at God, but God doesn't write you off. The encouraging part to me is the psalmist is still talking to God, even though he's disappointed at God. It's like, God, why didn't you answer my prayer? I prayed so hard for my loved one to be healed from cancer, and they still died. Where were you then? And there's anguish. 
I think if you live long enough, you're going to have some disappointment. You're going to have some grief. You're going to have some sorrow. And at those moments, we're tempted to blame God. We're tempted to abandon God, or at least let's just avoid Him. You're probably going to have some moments where you do things that you know are displeasing to God. And you're going to be tempted at those moments to just avoid Him because you feel kind of ashamed. You don't want what you did in darkness to be brought out into the light. So there's a lot of temptations and a lot of reasons why we might avoid God or run away from Him. So here's the encouraging part about the opening verses of Psalm 22. Even when you're in anguish, even when you're disappointed with God, even when you're doubting, even when you're angry with God, keep talking to Him. That's what I love about it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know what's happening? The communication channels are still open. Sometimes married couples, they have a fight, argument, and then after that, if they resolve it well, they feel much closer than they were before. You know, it may have been there have been weeks of uh, tension and unspoken, you know, uh, irritation, and finally it blows up, perhaps, and they finally talk it out, and it's painful, and there's tears and anger and all that, but if they resolve it well, there's a closeness now that they didn't have before, right? Because all the junk got cleared away and, and all those uh, unresolved issues got talked about and got put out on the table. This is what I think. If you're going to have a real, genuine, authentic, personal relationship with the Holy God, you've got to be honest. Uh, and I don't know, if you're honest, probably not happy all the time. Probably not feeling spiritual all the time, right? <laughs> probably not feeling religious. I've known people who, who say, yeah, didn't go to church and I haven't gone to church lately because I, I feel kind of bad about the way I've been living. I think, well, you know what? That's when you should go to church. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? It's like, I've known couples that said, you know, we were on our way to church and we got in a big argument in the car on the way to church so we didn't go in. And I get that. And I get that. We want to put on our best front. We want to look good. We want, we want people to feel like, you know, we're good, decent people, even Christian people. And we want to be on our best behavior and, you know, uh, all of that. I get that. But then, you know, the danger? We start avoiding church, Christians, uh, when, when we're not doing so good. We don't want anybody to know that we're really struggling in our marriage, right? Uh, uh, we don't want people to know that, you know, our, our, our child has become rebellious and is, you know, no longer respects us. So we all have these secrets, right? And in order to keep the secrets and to hide what's really going on, we want to avoid people. I, I, I think people, sometimes they drop out of church because of that. Like we're going through something difficult. We don't really want to talk about it. We, we don't want anybody to ask us about it. So the easiest thing is just start avoiding people. And we even do that with God. We start avoiding God. Far better, if this is where your heart is, to say, my God, my God, where are you? I cried out to you and didn't hear your response. You know, and I'm disappointed and I'm hurt. Or I'm even angry. But I'm still going to be in communication. Right? I'm still going to be in this relationship. We're still going to talk it out. So this is an encouraging thing. Actually, many of the Psalms are Psalms of Lament. There's some disappointment, there's some complaining, there's some sorrow, there's some anguish, but there's honesty. I think that's what the Scripture is trying to teach us here. We have an honest relationship with God. Now, he doesn't just stay there. The psalmist, after those opening verses of lament and complaint, there's verses of hope. There's a prayer of hope in verses 3 to 5. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. 
In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. So this is a good thing, right? Honest confession of disappointment. But then also, but you know what? I still believe. And one of the things that he does, which I think we need to do too, is uh, in those times of difficulty, recall your, your past experience with God. Recall the faithfulness of God. It recorded for us in the scriptures. And some of you, you've lived long, long enough, you've journeyed long enough with Jesus that, that you have some track record of relationship. Right now, it feels like you're not answering my prayers, but boy, I remember those other times you met me at my point of need. I remember seeing how you were working in ways that I didn't realize at the time. So this is what he's doing, and this is what we need to do too. He's recalling God's deliverance in the past. And then he's saying, well, what about now? So you see this, like verses 1 and 2 is a lament and complaint, and then verses 3 to 5 is a prayer of hope. Uh, then the next part, verses 6 through 8, go back into lament and complaint. There's kind of like this alternating uh, deal going on here. Verse 6, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. And it, you know what that is? That's mocking sarcasm, right? It's exactly the thing that happened to Jesus hundreds of years later when he's hanging on the cross. But the idea is not only am I physically just uncomfortable and suffering, but I'm facing the, the suffering of people rejecting me, ridiculing me, insulting me, mocking me. And so there's again lament. And again, I appreciate the honesty. Right? If we only come to God when we're feeling spiritual and feeling good, our relationship with God is going to be very erratic and inconsistent. Right? So, there's, a, again, lament and complaint in verses 6 through 8. And then there's another prayer of hope. Do you see that in verses 9 to 11? Prayer of hope. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. And it was, uh, since before I was born and since I was an infant, God, you have been there. And you took care of me. Even birth is a gift, right? It's a gift. I was talking with, this morning with a, a pregnant mother who's uh, expecting uh, to have her child this week. And we prayed for her that everything would go well and, and all of that. Uh, but, you know, birth itself is a gift. God didn't have to give it to you. Or you could have died at birth, right? So life is a gift. Every day is a gift. We ought to just receive it gratefully from him and recognize that he is the creator and he's the giver of life and, and, and live gratefully. So that's what the psalmist is doing here. He's recalling, I don't think he remembers consciously, but he says, you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you even at my mother's breasts. From birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Again, he's affirming God's past goodness and faithfulness. And then verse 11, he says, do not be far from me for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Okay, so again, a, a prayer of hope. Now, I don't know about you, but life can feel this way a little bit. Like there, there's some alternating between uh, prayers of hope and great faithfulness and rejoicing and praise. But sometimes then there's, there's prayers of desperation or disappointment. Oh, God, help. Right? Now, the fact that it kind of goes back and forth like that, again, I mean, that might encourage us. 
because we see some of that in our own lives. And again, the thing I want us to see is consistently coming to God, consistent communication, consistent honesty through the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows, your, your most spiritual moments and even maybe your less godly moments to say, don't abandon your faith at those times. So there's another prayer of hope there in verses 9 through 11. And then there's more lament and complaining, kind of a long section, verses 12 to 18. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I don't think he's talking here about literal wild animals. I think he's speaking metaphorically, like, you know, people attacking me, people criticizing me. Uh, verse 14, I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. It's like saying, you know, I, I got a broken heart right now. I'm hurting. Uh, verse 15, my mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth, and lay, you lay me in the dust of death. That's honesty, but it's kind of like saying, God, I'm going through a rough patch right now, and, and it's hard to cling on to hope. Uh, verse 16, dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me, they pierce my hands and my feet. That literally happened to Jesus, right, when they nailed him to the cross. All my bones are on display, people stare and gloat over me, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Again, that literally happened to Jesus in John chapter 19. So again, we see lament and complaint. In fact, you know what we see here is a description of execution, they pierce my hands and my feet. My bones are on display. People stare and gloat. They're dividing up my clothes. It's a picture, a description of execution uh, hundreds of years before Jesus died on that cross. And then again, change the channel, switch gears, prayer of hope. Uh, verse 19, but you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. So again, now, here's what we see. A plea for help, right? Not a rejection of God, but a plea for help. Do not be far, Lord. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me. Rescue me. Save me. If you were to put a bunch of Christians in a room, and you were to ask them, Tell me about the time in your life when you grew the most spiritually. Just think of a time. Usually what happens is, if you had the time to actually you know, individually interview people, for most people they would say, the time in my life when I grew the most spiritually was when I was going through a hard time. Isn't that right? Was it when you were going through a good time and on top of the world? Or was it a hard time? It was that time when I lost my job and I wasn't sure if I could pay my bills. And it took a lot longer to find a job than I thought it would or should. Right? Or it was that time when, when my marriage was struggling or maybe when my marriage ended. It was that time when uh, I was worried that my, my, my child was not going to survive. Right? Uh, it, was, it was that time when uh, um, I just wasn't getting along with somebody in my family and we had this unresolved conflict and maybe it's still going on today. For most people, we would say the times when I grew the most spiritually, when I got the closest to God, was in the midst of hardship or as a result of hardship. And nothing wrong with that. I just think maybe at those times the blinders are removed and we recognize how much we need God. 
Sometimes we, we can surround ourselves with so much props and so, so much busyness and so many distractions that we forget how much we need God. So uh, those times of difficulty, sometimes they are the moment of clarity where you're seeing reality, right? I do need God. I, I think I'm in control and I act like I'm in control, but actually I'm not, right? I can't cure cancer. I can't bring someone back from the dead. I need God. Now, have you noticed this, that while many people, the times when they really grew strong spiritually was in the midst of difficulty or in the aftermath of difficulty. For other people, they went through difficulty, maybe sorrow or loss, and it turned them away from God. I was talking with somebody who said, my dad used to be a Christian, but now he's not. Life did not turn out the way he had hoped. Um, and because of that, because of the disappointment, there's anger with God and frustration and there's a turning away of the heart. Maybe still saying I'm a Christian or still going to church, <clears throat> but there's a turning away of the heart. So I got to thinking, what's the difference? Why is it that when you go through hardship and suffering and disappointment, for some people, it it's like leads to a big growth spurt spiritually. And, and they, you know, they get closer to God than they were before. And other people, it has the opposite effect. They just turn away. And I think, <clears throat> in a way, it's up to us. It's up to us how we react, how we respond. Right? We can grow bitter or we can get better. We can turn away from God or we can turn toward God. Uh, one writer I was reading, he, he said this. He says, when hardship comes, it matters not how great the pressure is. It only matters where the pressure lies. See that the pressure does not come between you and God. You know, create a barrier and drive a wedge. Rather, let the pressure drive you closer, ever closer to his heart. And I think that's the difference. I, I think some people allow their hardship or their disappointment uh, to cause bitterness and a poison in their soul, uh, anger, resentment, not only against people who let them down, but against God. And, and they just start to drift and, and grow further and further away from him. Maybe one day they realize, I don't know God, I don't love God. I used to know him, but I know him no longer. I used to believe in him, but I believe no longer, right? And other people would say, you know, I went through that difficult time. I, I wouldn't wish it on anybody, but it really turned my heart toward the Lord. I realized I need him, and I trust him, and I, I came to experience his love. So I think we've got to look at that because um, this is not automatic. God's love is constant. God's presence is constant, but we don't always experience the manifestation of his presence. Jesus says, if you love me, if you obey me, man, I'm going to be right there with you. You know, you want to go my way? Uh, you know, if you want to pray, uh, thy kingdom come, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. May your name be honored. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Then, then you know what you're doing? It's like you're going and getting your wheels realigned so your car can go straight. You're getting your soul realigned so that your soul can be aligned with God and you can be in fellowship with him. And then Jesus says, it's going to be like the Father and I, we come and make our home with you. It's going to be like you open the door and we have supper together, that we share table fellowship. It can be so good, not because life is easy or without trial, but because God is good and because your heart is turned toward him rather than away. Uh, let's go back to Psalm 22. So, again, there's a lot of complaining from, from verses 12 to 18 and a, and a description of the sorrowful plight that this man is in. 
and then there's a prayer of hope in verses 19 to 21. Rescue me, deliver me, save me. And the rest of the psalm from verses 22 to 31 is kind of like the, uh, the great conclusion. Now there's a new inward assurance. Now there's renewed faith. Now there's open praise. Let me read it. Psalm 22, verse 22. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Now, this is especially referring to the covenant people of Israel, right? Uh, you, all you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he, God, has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. And you know what I think is going on here? I, I'm hearing, as I read this, hints of resurrection. You know, hundreds of years later, Jesus would die on the cross and, and all the lament and sorrow and complaining could be applied to his sorrowful, difficult state. But on the third day, he was raised from the dead. Well, well there's some hint at that. God has come through to help. Uh, God has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. And as a result, there's worship. For from you, verse 25, from you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. And so here we see God's people experiencing renewal, right? They cried out to God when they were going through difficult down times, but they hung in with him and now it's like God can bring revival and renewal. Now, not only for the people of Israel, the covenant people, but at the very end, from verses 27 to 31, now we see a view of the worldwide deliverance that Christ came to bring. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. We're not just talking about Israel anymore. We're talking about the worldwide mission that, that Christ would come to fulfill. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive, even the dead, right? Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. That's us, right? Especially most of us. We're not from the Jewish culture or nation. But we're part of this. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it, telling them what God has done. Here's what I want you to realize about this psalm. When Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not just a cry of despair. It's not like giving up on God. It's not abandoning God or, or even saying, God, you've abandoned me. What, it's, what he's doing is he's saying, Think about Psalm 22. That whole flow, uh, you know, uh, despair, complaint, lament, prayers of hope. Despair, uh, difficulty, prayers of hope. And, and it alternates that way until it gets to that point where uh, the whole second half of it, or the last part of it, is all about hope and faith and prayer and praise. And then it's about redemption, about God's people being renewed. And then it's about mission to the ends of the earth people will remember and turn to the Lord and will bow down before him. So the early verses speak about suffering. We might think of it if Christ is going to you know, remind us of this while he's on the cross. The early verses speak of Christ's suffering. And then the closing verses speak of the renewal of Israel 
and then of the worldwide significance, the worldwide deliverance that Christ makes possible. Let me go back to A.W. Tozer, his book, Pursuit of God. The universal presence of God is a fact. God is here. The whole universe is alive with his life. And he is no longer a strange or foreign God, but he's the familiar father of our Lord Jesus Christ, whose love has for these thousands of years enfolded sinful people who would turn to him. And always, always God is trying to get our attention, to reveal himself to us, to communicate with us. And we have within us the ability to know him if we will but respond to his overtures. Because God is reaching out, but he doesn't break down your door. He knocks. And then we need to respond to the overtures. It's not saying we're saved by our works. We're saved by the grace of God. But, but it's our faith that opens the door. And so we say, we can respond. We have within us the ability to know God if we will but respond to his overtures. That's what A.W. Tozer is calling the pursuit of God. We will know him in increasing degree as our receptivity becomes more perfect by faith, by love, and by practice. This is really important. God is closer than you think. In fact, God is closer than we realize most of the time. But here's what we can do we can know that he's near even when we don't feel him. We can place our trust in him even when we don't understand what's going on. You know, if you trust God only when you understand what he's doing, then you're not really trusting him, you're trusting yourself. Isn't that right? And if you follow God only when you know where it's going to lead, then you're not really following him, you're following you, right? So this is the thing. I think about when Jesus, you remember when he called Peter and uh, James and John and Andrew, and you know, he went to the shore by the Sea of Galilee, and, and this is where they live, this is where they grew up, this is their turf, and, and they're fishermen, and you know, they're, they're comfortable with that. Probably their fathers were fishermen and their grandfathers and, and all of that. So they've got a nice, normal life, ordinary life, but it's set, it's secure, it's known, it's familiar. And then Jesus, he says, you know what, come follow me. The kingdom of God has arrived. It's drawn near. Repent and believe the good news. Uh, you know how to fish for fish. I want to teach you how to fish for people. Come follow me. Now, they knew enough about Jesus to respond in faith and to come and follow him. But they had no idea where the road would lead, right? They didn't know he's going to get crucified. They didn't know that all the religious uh, leaders would turn against him. Uh, they didn't know that they would see him uh, arrested and whipped and beaten and uh, tortured, right? Uh, they didn't know that uh, maybe following Jesus might endanger their own lives. There's a whole lot of things they didn't know. If they were going to say, you know, Jesus, before I follow you, give me the five-year plan, give me the ten-year plan. Uh, what, what's, what's the uh, pension like, you know? Uh, you know, if we insist on knowing what's going to happen, then we're not trusting and we're not following. So here's what Jesus does. He says, I'm good, I'm faithful, I love you. Let's go on a journey together. Let, let's do life together. And I'll lead and you follow and uh, I'm going to lead you on uh, adventures you never dreamed of. I'm going to use you to touch other lives and I, I want to use you to help the poor. I want to I use you to share the good news of the gospel. I, I want to use you to help point people toward God so they can experience God's purposes for their lives. 
Yeah. I, I want to use you to work for justice so that, so that this world is more like that world, the kingdom, right? So that down here becomes more like up there, like John Orberg talks about. So we have to decide not whether God is present or not, but are we going to like be aware? And are we going to be receptive? And are we going to be responsive? Because God is here. And he's closer than you think. But if you follow him, it's going to make all the difference in the world. So again, A.W. Tozer, he says this, God will manifest himself to us, and that manifestation will be the difference between a nominal Christian life and a life radiant with the light of his face. So you choose. Which do you want? Let's pray. Take a moment in silence. Maybe you want to pray about your response and your choices. Maybe there's some things you want to confess to the Lord. Lord, we are too often oblivious. You're here, but we're not aware. You're speaking, but we're not listening. Oh, Lord God, we repent. We repent of our sinful preoccupation with visible things while we ignore the reality of your presence with us each moment of each day. The world has been too much with us, causing us to take our eyes off you. But Lord, all along, you have been right here, and we knew it not. We have been too often blind to your presence and deaf to your voice. Open our eyes that we may behold you in us and around us. Open our ears that we may hear your voice as you speak to us through your word, through your spirit, through your people. And Lord God, open our hearts that we may know you deeply each day everywhere we go. For Christ's sake we pray.